Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Could you profit from a last-minute PPI claim? With a matter of days to go until the deadline on making a claim for missold payment protection insurance kicks in on August the 29th, The Money Show brings you a special episode dedicated to last-minute tips for making a claim – even if you are not sure that you ever had PPI, think you've lost the paperwork or don't want to use a costly claims management company. Our money mentor, Lindsay Cook, is here with all the answers. And taper tantrums have kicked off big time in the UK pensions industry as the Chancellor moves to review the annual allowance taper for the NHS and other public sector workers paying into a pension. What can they and workers in the private sector hope for from his review? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. Now, who could have failed to heed the advice of Arnold Schwarzenegger's disembodied head, which has featured in a series of campaigning adverts from the FCA, the city regulator, urging us to do it now? Now being claiming PPI compensation before the 29th of August. So I'm sure that listeners at home are thinking, oh, I've had so many text messages about this over the last six years. Could I have had it? Should I put a claim in? And how difficult is the process? Well, with just over two weeks to go at the time of recording, we are here with last minute tips from the FT's money mentor, Lindsay Cook. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. Good morning. Great to have you back. So You've written a special piece um, for us looking at some of the most common questions that um, readers and listeners to your various radio programmes um, are asking about PPI. And one of the biggest questions is, how do I find out whether I had it or not? Because if you don't do it within the next two weeks, that's it. Gone forever. It is. And quite a few people had not realised that their credit cards or small personal loans or store cards actually carried PPI. Um, they don't know um, that they were missold as well. Some people know they had the policy, but they um, were self-employed or in some cases retired or stay-at-home mothers. And therefore, they couldn't hadn't got a job to lose because the insurance was to pay... Um, well, it was to safeguard the banks and lenders if we took out a loan and then lost our jobs or were sick and couldn't afford the payments. So that's why people took out the policy and it was appropriate in some cases. Um, but unfortunately, there were 64 million policies and probably a good half of them were um, missold because um, staff were on incentives and... Um, they had to sell so many policies a week, a month or whatever. And so people were sometimes didn't even know 
that it had been added to their payments. Now, anyone claiming online um, who looks at any article on PPI, including your own, um, will see that if you want to come up with a reason for being missold PPI, then PPI being added to your loan or credit product without your knowledge um, is one reason that it could have been missold. As you said, if you were self-employed or a student or didn't have a regular income and PPI was applied, then that would also be a valid argument for um, having um, had PPI missold. But People are often thinking about smaller loans like credit cards um, and store cards and they're not necessarily aware that they could have had PPI on their mortgage. Yes, and some people get confused with their mortgages as well um, because 30 years ago most mortgages had term insurance and this was to pay off the loan if the um, borrower died before the mortgage was finished. And that's different from PPI. And that's different from PPI and was a good thing because it meant that if you lost your partner, you weren't going to lose your home at the same time. Um, so that was a good thing. But um, mortgage payment insurance was also there. And it depends on, again, if you were told about it, how much the commission was, because if the commission was over 50% of the premiums, then that is missold. You should get some money back as a result of a case called Plevin. Um, if you were self-employed. Um, that was another thing. Um, so it, there are lots of reasons why you you shouldn't have had the cover. And in the case of um, somebody I know who works for the FT, who um, successfully argued that they were missold payment protection insurance on a mortgage, she was told you can't take out this mortgage um, as a foreign national in the UK unless you take out the insurance. That was one of the key things with PPI. Lots of people were told that. And in fact, it's not just uh, domestic customers. Small businesses who had PPI added to their loans um, were probably more frequently told they couldn't have the loan if they didn't take out the PPI. And as they were a small business um, owner, they couldn't claim either because um, if their business went barely up, um, it would be regarded as their fault and they wouldn't be unemployed. Well, they'd be unemployed, but they couldn't claim. Um, and some of the biggest claims are people who um, were sold it in this way. Yeah, some six-figure ones have, have come to light recently. So let's get on to the logistics now, the practicalities um, of, of making a claim. So the biggest problem for most people is they think, well, I took out this credit card, this loan, this store card. Um, I think I may well have had um, PPI, but I no longer have the paperwork shouldn't stop you from making a claim um, if you know where you lived, if you know uh, when you took out the loan, credit card, credit agreement. Um, it is better if you've got a policy number, but you might have the loan number. Um, you might have the paperwork. One way of checking, because one thing that's happened is Building societies have been taken over by other building well, societies yes, and banks. Other mm. companies have gone out of business. So you need to find out who your loan was with or who is responsible now for it. And both the Financial Conduct Authority and Resolver.co.uk has a full list of who took over whom uh, to go back to. Also, um, you can do a free credit check and that will um, tell you going back quite a long way. Um, some of them are only going back six years, but many of them go back much longer. Um, and it will tell you who you borrowed from, 
when, and that might give you an account number. And having that account number um, can be helpful in just getting you along um, in making the claim. Well, one thing that I've been doing uh, this week, thinking, God, you know, I must have had PPI um, on something, is remembering what store cards I had um, when I was a young, feckless student. Um, and I sat down and thought, you know, what were my favourite shops um, when I was younger? Oh, yes, I liked Oasis. And I did have an Oasis store card. Could I have had um, PPI on that? And I've been looking up um, things to do with this. So, I mean, that's just one tip from me about thinking back into the past um, because this covers a potentially huge period um, PPI. I mean some people have had PPI put on um, credit cards and loans you know dating back from the 80s. Absolutely and one of the bonuses of a claim is that you get 8% interest per year since the time you paid the um, premiums. So if you had a, a credit card or a personal loan back in the um, early 80s, you, you're going to be one of the ones who get quite a nice tidy sum of money. OK, so we've covered how people can claim with no paperwork, but when it comes to making a claim online, you've basically got three options. Um, you can do it yourself um, on the website of the lender um, that you originally were sold the PPI policy from or whoever has taken them over. Or you could go it onto the online website you mentioned just then, resolver.co.uk, which is a free um, online tool, uh, which is kind of spun out of um, Martin Lewis's Money Saving Expert website. Um, you've used Resolver to, to make a claim. It's slightly easier, I have to say, than many of the bank's own websites. What kind of things can listeners expect if they used it to mount a claim themselves? Um, it, it really only takes minutes, but... You shouldn't make a claim if you're not pretty sure that you had an account that could have had the the um, policy because um, some of the banks are complaining that they're being clogged by people who never even had accounts with them. And that's silly. And I think that comes probably from claims management companies just hoovering up all the banks and putting in a claim for a client for everywhere. Um, it should take up to eight weeks Doing it through the banks, there's an eight-page form to fill in and it covers all scenarios. So it asks you, um, were you told you were having, you had to have this policy? Were what, you in full-time employment? Yes, were time? you in full-time employment? Um, Did your partner also um, have a, a stake in this credit agreement? And if so, what are all of their details, date of birth, address, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. And, and it does, they will ask you for a lot of addresses. And if it goes back 30 years... Most claimants will have several addresses and it may be that they've got a credit card now that is from the same company um, and so their current address will help the bank to go back and, and find the earlier ones. Um, they are All the lenders are obliged to answer your requests honestly. At this stage, because there's so little time until the deadline, it's if you're Applying directly to the bank, you need to put on the form. I don't think there's a space for it, but you need to write, this is a complaint. Not an inquiry. Not an yeah. inquiry, because although some of the banks are saying, oh, we'll treat any contact um, as a claim, we'll wait and see. I mean, there's, they've already paid out more than £35 billion. There's another £10 billion up for grabs. And some banks might even be looking at, oh, in a couple of years' time, we can restore that to the balance sheet and we'll look really profitable. So we need to make sure that 
any money that is owed to people should be claimed. Okay, so another thing that readers have mentioned is, is it possible to claim PPI on behalf of a deceased relative? And unfortunately, if you have to do a house clearance, clearing out old paperwork, you can often find paperwork that will suggest that a relative has taken out PPI and could potentially be one of those people who is entitled to claim. Yeah. Yes, you can make a claim um, as either the executor or the beneficiary of a will, or if you're somebody who, under the intestacy rules, would be the natural um, beneficiary of the estate. Um, you can't tell whether the person was told about PPI and things like that. The the claims that are easiest in this category are ones where um, the person was self-employed, uh, the commission was more than 50%. Um, unless you find paperwork, um, which um, implies that the person just ticked a box or, or whatever. So harder to do, um, but still possible. And obviously, if it, any payout is awarded, um, that conversation would then become part of the estate to be distributed through the usual channels. So finally, about this deadline. So it's um, August the 29th, but if you get your complaint in before then and the bank says, no, we reject this, um, and you find out seven or eight weeks after that deadline... What can people do then? Well, you've got up to six months after they've rejected it to take it to the financial ombudsman. And the financial ombudsman service, up until January this year, had had two million um, cases involving PPI. That is, people who thought they had a claim um, and... They were knocked back for whatever They, they were knocked back um, in the early days of this because this, these claims have been going back to, I think, 2011. In the early days, something close to 80% of cases that were knocked back and then went to the ombudsman um, were found in the favour of the claimant. At the moment, um, it's a much lower percentage. Um, and that's possibly because claims management companies are coming in. Um, of the ones knocked back, only 20% of those are... Um, people doing it for themselves and 75% are mm. people, um, claims management companies, because they just do it across the piece and um, it's not necessarily as genuine that the person who is filling out the form um, feels that there is um, a policy there to be claimed on. Sure. And final, final point on the claims management companies. These are the kind of people who would be clogging up your mobile phone with texts, etc. If anyone's tempted to go with a claims management company... Why shouldn't they? Well, they will sacrifice about 25% of their um, compensation if they get it. Um, so that's one good reason. And I've come across people who, who've paid sort of 15000 plus to a claims management company. Having said that, I have also um, spoken with people who don't have a computer, um, don't really have much memory of what they borrowed, but they know at certain times in their life when they moved house, they were really strapped for cash. And a couple of these just got letters through the post saying, can we help you? Did you have it? And they got, they all, the ones, this was one particular family, they all got money. Uh, one woman who had no idea um, that she'd pay, had PPI, uh, got £5,000, it's paying for a cruise this autumn. She says, yes, I paid £1,200 in, in fees, but I would never have got through the form on uh, from the bank. 
Well, some food for thought there. Lindsay has written an article, Last Minute Tips on Claiming PPI, which you can read online on our website now, ft.com slash money. And if you have had any experiences, positive or negative, of reclaiming missile PPI insurance, then we would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on our email address, money at ft.com. And I will update you on the progress of my own personal uh, PPI claims on a future podcast. We all have bad habits, but these can prove pretty costly if they are linked to our finances. Now, my next guest argues that we're hardwired as human beings to favour immediate pleasure over deferred gratification. Sound familiar? But he's also going to share some effective money habits we can all adopt. Jason Butler, the FT's Wealth Man columnist, joins me in the studio now. Welcome, Jason. Hello, Claire. Well, one of the worst financial habits, it turns out, is letting our emotions rule our finances. Yeah, well, I think it's because if you look at most of the studies, we, we've we got a, a primeval hardwiring to favour immediate gratification, you know, immediate rewards as opposed to things in the future. And when it comes to money, spending your money now to have an immediate reward of a holiday or going out for drinks or buying that new car or, or new pair lipstick. of shoes. Or lipstick <laughs> or a face cream or whatever. Yes, I am in a house of ladies, so I know about these are essentials. But that will always crowd out and will always be more appealing because primevally we are hardwired to think about survival and that, that served us very well you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago. But when it comes to your money, it can play havoc with your need to save, invest and to avoid spending more than you earn and incurring debt. Now, one of the things that you said in your column on this topic was that you should avoid making financial decisions when you are emotional as a direct result? Well, we're all emotional all of the time. The point I was making was that if you are going through a trauma or if you are very sad or depressed or you're grieving, that is not a good time to be making key financial decisions. I mean, you know, buying three coffees a day as opposed to one in the long run won't be doing you finances any good, but in the short term, it's okay. But deciding about selling houses, businesses, investing in new things, or even indeed, if you've sold a business, I've seen this many times, you, you've, you've spent years building a business, you've sold it for a significant sum, several million pounds, perhaps, and then, and then lots of opportunities come to you and you're flush with this feeling that you've been vindicated for all your hard work. And so therefore, you're over optimistic. So your emotional state, whether it's uh, predominantly uh, to make you feel better mm. or because you're overly excited and optimistic about the future from what you've already achieved can mean that you don't look at things clearly and dispassionately. So so the doer in you, the impulsiveness part of you, will respond to the need to do something as opposed to the rational planner, the long term, what's in your best interests. Well, as we were hearing in our first item about PPI, anyone who's managed to actually get some PPI compensation, your next bad habit relates to our desire to spend these unexpected windfalls. Yeah, well, that point is that we don't view every pound or every dollar or every euro the same. So where the money comes from, the source of the money seems, from all the studies I've looked at, seems to have a big bearing as to how we think of it. So, for instance, you might think that when you go and if you if you bet say a hundred pounds and you got five hundred pounds back, you'd think that the hundred was yours, but the four hundred was free money, so you could do something differently with it. Rather than thinking, I now have five hundred pounds, what should I do with it? You know, full stop where it's come from. Or if you have winnings. So we were in regularly on the premium bonds. Most of the time it's £25. We don't spend that money, we just have it reinvested. So I think the point there is that if you get a pay rise 
or if you get a bonus or you get a tax rebate, it, all of it is the same. And you should just look at it and, and develop a set of rules. And I think one of my previous articles, I talked about the money rules, didn't I? Mm. Develop your own set of rules. And it doesn't matter where the money comes from, you should dispassionately look at it and apply it to your short, medium and long term needs and priorities. Yeah, as you have said in that article, future you and and fun you. You know, oh yeah, you spend, gotta make time for fun. Yeah, spend gotta, some of fun. it. Yeah, but, you know, have a have a ratio in mind where but the key the key point is is that you've got to be making sure you're good to the all three of yous: the basic you, the present you, you know, fun you, and the future you. And finally, you also reckon we can replace some of our bad habits with good ones, and you've done that yourself recently. Not that you would have any bad money habits, being you know Jason. Oh no, I've had plenty of bad money habits. That's what makes me reasonably good at advising people. Um, but yeah, the the one was about alcohol, and and that's the central theme which I explained is that I hadn't had a a week in thirty years, other than perhaps if I had flu or something, when I hadn't had an alcoholic drink. That doesn't mean I was drinking every day or drinking enormous amounts and couldn't get up in the morning, but just thought, hang on a minute, this isn't. Right. And I wanted to change my association and my habits around alcohol. And so what I did was I replaced the alcohol in my fridge with just non-alcoholic beer and non-alcoholic wine because it was actually the routine of having a cold beer on a Friday night or a glass of wine with my dinner on a Friday or Saturday. And I wanted to just change that so that the alcohol for me is about if I go out with a friend or a colleague or a special occasion or I want to celebrate something or I feel, you know, the situation is more social as opposed to habitual. So when it comes to money, if you're thinking, you know, you're, you regularly go out to the shops and spend money, you know, for an hour in your lunch break, why don't you think about perhaps taking a book and go and sit in the park and, and so replace that that previously spending or financially detrimental habit with a better habit by de- redesigning your environment and your routine. Well, lots to think about there. Thank you very much to Jason Butler, our Wealth Man columnist. You can read his column, The Six Effective Financial Habits to Adopt, now on our website, ft.com money. The tapered annual allowance, a means of clawing back pensions tax relief, only affects those on very high incomes. However, the unintended consequences of this tax legislation are affecting everyone who relies on the NHS in Britain, as senior staff are cutting their hours, sometimes refusing to work extra shifts in order to avoid punitive tax charges. The new Chancellor, Sajid Javid, has pledged a review. But how far will it go? Here in the studio to explain more is Josephine Cumbo, the FT's pensions correspondent. Welcome back, Joe. Hello. Always a pleasure to have you on the FT Money podcast. But these are pretty tricky concepts um, for people to get their heads around. But can you tell us why the taper is such a problem for the NHS? There's two reasons why the taper is such a big problem for the NHS. Uh, Number one, it's the rules and the design of the pension scheme. Number two, the NHS has got the most high earners out of all the public sector servants uh, in this country. So that's the reason why the NHS is particularly hit by the taper, just breaking down those two problems to start with. The pension scheme is rigidly set in terms of contributions. So consultants, the most senior doctors, will typically have no choice as to what the level of their contributions, unlike people in the private sector, they typically pay 13 to 14% of salary into the scheme or they pay nothing. And what this means is that it affects pension growth and that pushes them into the taper zone. So that is a chief problem is the lack of flexibility. And secondly, the other issue is it's just the high concentration of high earners in the the, in the NHS 
at risk of the taper. Currently, every full-time consultant in this country working uh, as a senior consultant is at risk of, of getting a taper bill. So this is why the problem is so big, not just for the NHS, but for the government who wants to ensure that patients get seen in a timely manner and aren't waiting too long for, for their surgery. So what do pensions experts think the Chancellor will do to try and find a cure for these problems? The Chancellor has proposed, number one, just changing the rules for the pension scheme for senior doctors only, not for the rest of the, for, for, for members of the NHS or anyone else, just to start with, to make clear these changes are only recommended for senior doctors. And what they will do is give senior doctors more flexibility, full flexibility over their pension contributions um, so they can mitigate the risk of getting um into the taper zone and getting tax bills. Doctors aren't completely happy with this resolution. They want the taper to go. The government has said that it's going to review the taper. But as to what happens from here, opinions are fairly mixed, more so, though, on the side of minor tweaks to the system more generally. They, they, the, the experts I've spoken to do not see that this is going to lead to any more wide-scale changes across the system to the taper because that, that would be quite a drastic measure for the government to do without a broader review of how tax relief works. So for anyone listening who's affected by the pensions taper, who's working in the private sector, not much hope that the NHS row will kill the taper off, um, as you've explained in your article. But for other high earners in the public sector... They've been kicking off and saying, well, if you're making exceptions for the NHS, allowing people to have, um, you know, cash in lieu of pension contributions, for example, then we want it. And we're other servants like dentists or Yeah, the dentists servants. weren't happy. <laughs> Neither were the judges <laughs> when they heard about what was going on with the NHS. And quite, I can see their argument too, because there are plenty of high earners working as dentists, as judges in the armed forces, working as medics for the armed forces particularly, who are hit by exactly the same problems and in some cases even worse than than the NHS and they haven't got the flexibility. So their argument is, well, this flexibility should be extended to the rest of us as well. Now, the government is committed to reviewing the effect of the taper across the public sector, so that would cover uh, dentists, the armed forces, police chiefs, etc. But for them to go as far as extending these flexibilities to other public servants would involve the Treasury having to make some pretty tricky decisions uh, and number crunching because it relies on those pension contributions from the higher earners to subsidise uh, the pensions of, of lower earners uh, working for the public service. So for them to make the decision to extend those flexibilities for the rest of the public sector, I think would be quite a big move, but I can certainly see the case and the argument being made by the rest of civil uh, public servants for that to be ex those flexibilities to be extended to them as well. Well, thanks very much there to Joe Cumber. You can read the full story um, on our website at ft.com slash money, the future for the pensions taper. That's it for The Money Show this week. If you want to get in touch with me, Claire Barrett, or our team of writers, or even suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about on this podcast, email us, money at ft.com. To stay up to date with the latest money news, you can follow us on Twitter at ftmoney, or check out our new LinkedIn page. Search for Financial Times, your money, and we will add you to the group. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.